with me to Romans chapter 9. We're going to take a little bit of an unusual approach to where we are today. Um, Typically, what I would be doing is uh, trying to just do one small section. Um, Unfortunately, what happens often, especially with these three chapters, and most commentators will agree that uh, within 9, 10, and 11 are some of the most difficult notions that Paul uses in the whole of the New Testament. Some of these are very difficult to mine out. But if we can get a real sense of the flow of his thoughts and where it is he's going, I think we'll have a much easier time of going back and getting the individual portions and understanding them well. And in fact, while we look at it as a unique section unto itself, still it's connected with the previous. Because one of the things that I delight uh, about Scripture in is that Scripture often forces us to ask questions we wouldn't ask. We're fallen, and sometimes we don't know the right questions to ask. And so by the Holy Spirit, Paul puts down questions that you and I might not have popped into our mind, but nevertheless are more essential for us to know than the questions we would have asked. And he's going to do that in some surprising ways all the way through this passage. So chapter 8 finishes with that great crescendo. Uh, What then shall we say to these things? Verse 31, which we... Uh, came to last week, and he gave a series of answers. Uh, what shall we say to what things? Well, the things in chapter, specifically chapter 5 through the end of chapter 8, but we could go all the way back to chapter 1, doesn't matter. But what do we say to those things? So the first answer in verse 31, well, if God be for us, who can be against us? Uh, with the ultimate security, the absolute security of the believer. And then secondly, what can we possibly lack? If, if God gave His own Son to die for us, how, what will He withhold from us? Nothing that we really need. And the utter and complete sufficiency that Christ supplies for all of His children. Thirdly, who can accuse us of anything? Well, nobody. It's, we've been justified with the righteousness of Christ. And who can condemn us? Well, no one, because we've already received complete pardon Utter and complete because of Christ's sacrifice at Calvary. And who then can cut us off from the love of God? No one. No one. No one. But that would raise a question in the mind of his hearers. And not only his hearers, but others who would have heard him preach this. It maybe it won't be the question that struck you, but it's an important question. It's one that all people wrestle with at one time or another who come to Christ. Because... As we had read for us in Genesis chapter 17, God made promises to Israel, an everlasting covenant. And if if that seems to be different now, and here's this thing called the church, well then how secure am I really? How do I take Romans 8? Do I really understand the nature of my security as a Christian? Or what's happened with this whole thing with his everlasting covenant to Abraham and his offspring? How do I wrestle with that? And so he's anticipating that kind of a question coming through the gate. 
And he's going he's to unpack it for us. You've answered, what shall we say to these things for the believer? But what shall we say to these things for the Jew? If God can make them all sorts of eternal promises and everlasting and then change things, what real security do I have as a believer? That's the question. Now, I didn't ask that question. Paul's anticipating it. That's what he's bringing to the table. And he's going to use that to then unpack a whole lot of other ideas. And in the process, he's going to give us a real lesson in understanding the theology of the Bible. Because now he's going to force us to face certain concepts. Some of us probably don't even like the word, like the word election. And we're going to say, what do we do with that? I'm not, I'm not sure how to understand that in God's scheme. He's going to unpack that for us. And we're going to understand that election may be different than some of us thought it was and may be, may be far more glorious than any of us ever anticipated. What about the word redemption? God redeems his people from Egypt. Does that mean that they were converted? We talk about redemption and we talk about a person being converted, being brought to Christ. Are they one and the same thing or does Scripture have a, a range for those words and how they're used? How about God's people? What does it mean to be God's people as the Jews? What does it mean to be God's people as Christians? Are they identical? Are they different? Now, all those things are going to play into how he works through this passage and says we've got to unpack some of these things so that we can really understand where we stand and how God's process has worked through from the beginning. So you're going to listen very fast this morning. We're going to cover a ton of material because we're going to walk through all three of these chapters together and give us that, that sense of overview and the flow of his arguments and questions and answers so that we can then come back and deal with each section individually. Uh, and so, we pick up with this, this great cry at the very beginning of chapter 9. I'm speaking the truth in Christ, he says. I'm not lying. Isn't it interesting? He's going to multiply his terms here to try and really communicate to you. He wants you to understand where he's coming from. Because, you know, he's the apostle to the Gentiles, which he's going to bring up in a little bit. What about the Jews? Do we just write them off? Do we just leave them alone? What do we do with them? Are they in a separate class? How do we understand them? But I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. A Holy Spirit prompted anguish over His own Jewish people. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. After all, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption that we talked about in the previous chapter. The glory, which was God's presence in the tabernacle and the temple, the, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. What do we do with them? And the implied question is, Paul, have I, Paul, given up on the Jewish nation? Now that I'm preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, now that I am the apostle to the Gentiles, have I given up on the Jewish nation? And his answer in these first five verses is no. I agonize over them. Now that... that 
tells you something about his, his attitude toward the Jewish nation. He hasn't written them off. He hasn't just dismissed them. It's interesting how in many parts of Protestantism today, it's as though we don't even want to address the Jewish issue. They're just kind of out of the picture. Paul says, I can't do that. I bear witness to you. I'm not lying in the Holy Spirit. I love them so much. I agonize over them so much. I wish that I could be cut off if it were possible for me to go to hell so that they could have salvation. I'd do it. That's how much I love them. No, I haven't written them off. No, they are, they are God's people and I agonize over them. Well, that's going to open a can of worms. And he opens it up in verse 6, which is the second question that we have here. If you're keeping notes, you saw under the answer then, the word was no, I agonize over them. Well, is, is, is it true then, have God's promises to them failed, if this is the case? That the gospel now comes to the Gentiles and that this whole new thing seems to be happening. Have God's promises to them failed? And he says, no, no, not there either. And for two good reasons. The first, he picks it up in verse 6, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. What word of God? The promises that were given to them. We just read it back in Genesis 17. Put your finger here in Romans 9 and go back to Genesis 17 again for one second. I want you to catch the impact of some of these words. They're really important for you to, to digest. Picking up in verse 6 of chapter 17. God says to Abraham here, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations. Note the plural there. Not one nation, but nations. It's a very important distinction. And kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. What's the termination point of an everlasting covenant? There is none. I've got to wrestle with that reality. That's, that's, that's what Paul's dealing with here in Romans. And I will... Uh, to be God to you and to your offspring after you, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Wow, those are pretty ironclad, powerful, heavy statements. Well, Paul, how do I reckon that in the middle of now that it seems as though the, the gospel's running wild among the Gentile nations and it's almost a completely separate thing from, from Israel? What do we do with that? Well, have God's promises to them failed? Answer, no. No, not at all. And this for two reasons. In 6 through 10, he says, first, letter A in your notes, there is the issue of the spiritual over the natural. When it comes to Israel, the term Israel is applied different ways. It's applied to an individual, it's applied to the nation of Israel, and it's applied to a spiritual group. And I need to be able to discern the difference between them in the text. Very important. It's not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Say what? Well, he explains it. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. What's that all about? 
What do you mean not everybody from Israel is, is from Israel? Well, Abraham already had a son. When Isaac was prophesied to be, to be born, he already had a son by the name of Ishmael. He was 12 years old. And yet, he doesn't seem to be the child of promise. How do I understand that? What do I do with that whole thing? We're going to unpack that in much detail later. But I would say to you, especially those of you that are younger here and you have Christian parents, just because you have Christian parents doesn't mean you're a child of the promise. You have to reckon with God individually, each one of you. Because just being born to Christian parents doesn't mean you're a Christian. Owning Christ as your Savior does. But not just being born to Christian parents. Not all of Israel are Israel. And and then he not only gives us this example of, of Isaac, for this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but also... Second principle, spiritual over the natural. There's this spiritual son who carries on the name versus just simply a natural son like like Ishmael. But there's a a second thing, verses 11 through 13, and it's the issue of electing grace. And this begins to open a whole new area. For picking up in verse 10, and not only so, not only this issue with, with Isaac, But also, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I hated. Very strong words. It's words that are going to need some time to, to really work through and the implications of them. But there's not only haven't God's promises failed, they haven't failed because, number one, not everybody from Israel is Israel. Not everybody who's a physical descendant of Abraham has the promise. And number two, there's the issue of electing grace. God elects. Now, that's interesting. What shall we say then? Is there injustice in God? Now, that's the third question that's going to pop into your mind, verses 14 through 18. Are either of those unjust? Is it unjust for God to say, you can have offspring, but I'm going to have one who's going to carry the promise? Is it unjust for God to elect out of grace? And he says, no. No, it's not unjust. And how does he, on what basis? Well, What shall we say then? Is there injustice in God's part? Verse 14, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it, and we've got to define it. What does he mean by it? What does, you know, sounds Clinton-esque, doesn't it? What does it mean? Salvation. It does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has. And here is a most important connection. We're going to spend a lot of time unpacking this in later weeks. For, um, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Sadly, even in Reformed circles, there has come to be a form of teaching of the doctrine of election that separates it artificially from the reality of mercy. And whenever you have election without mercy, you have a perversion of the doctrine of election. 
I love Alexander, or, uh, Eric Alexander's statement regarding the doctrine of election. That he says, the doctrine of election is neither a banner to be waved nor a bomb to be dropped. It is a soothing balm for the soul of the troubled Christian. Please bear that in mind. Election is never a hammer to use against a lost man. It's not the purpose of the doctrine. Martin Lloyd-Jones said he would never discuss it with an unsaved man because it's a family secret. It belongs to us. But we understand that the operating mechanism behind election is mercy. He's going to unpack this in big terms later. And we really need to get it into our minds because often we have misused and abused a very wonderful truth and have injured people in the process. No, they are evidence of God's eternal plan and God's mercy. He has always stated, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and compassion on whom I will have compassion. Are either of them unjust? No. So then... Picking up in 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So, and here's the negative example, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And what do we do with that? He hardens deals. How do I wrestle through that? And might I say that one of the problems that we have as a paradigm for us in understanding, and we're going to deal with this a few minutes later, in understanding that our whole approach to evangelism, I can tell you if you understand the doctrine of election improperly. If you understand it improperly, then you don't think, you don't think evangelism is a very big deal. So you can test yourself. How do I know whether I understand it biblically? If you've lost your zeal for evangelism because you hold to election, then you've understood the doctrine improperly. Because it is the outpouring of God's mercy. And who does he harden? Does he harden neutral men? No. He's going he's to take this apart for us later too. It's why he appeals to Pharaoh so that we can see what hardening he's talking about as he moves through the passage. But don't go there. Let, let him work through the propositions. Well then, our fourth question. Well, if these are true, then why are men responsible? If there is this spiritual and natural if there's electing grace, if this is God's plan and God's mercy, then why are men held responsible? That's what he brings up in verse 19, isn't it? Well, you'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And then he's going to give you two answers to that question. And the first is the one that bristles most against our flesh. And it's quite simply this. God has absolute rights over his creatures. God has absolute rights over his creatures. Remember, when we started this entire study in Romans, one of the things that we've talked about is that what men are engaged in battle with God over is the issue of who has the right of supremacy over our souls. That's always the battle. Always. And what does he say? I have the right. I've made you. I have absolute right over your life. And I tell you, that is a frightening thing for some of us. Right now, some are saying, I'm not sure I feel very comfortable with that. I understand. It's an uncomfortable notion. But it's true. 
If this is true, why are men responsible? Well, first, because he says, who, and, and he asks the question, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? There's a question. We'll be going back and dealing with that later. That's his first point, is that God has absolute rights over his creatures. So that's why man is responsible. But secondly, in verses 22 through 24, why is it a problem for us if that's the way he's chosen to reveal his great mercy? You see, what we've done is put ourselves in the position of saying we will measure God by our logic and by our sense of justice rather than God measuring us by his. And he won't let us go there. The Apostle Paul, in at least nine places in the New Testament, uses a phrase. It's most often translated, if you've got a King James, it's most often translated, God forbid. The problem with that translation is God doesn't appear in the phrase. The phrase in the Greek is meganoito, and it means may it never be. With the sole exception of the use of it in Galatians chapter 5, every time Paul uses the phrase, he always uses it under the same conditions. He has given a premise and he's making sure that we don't draw the wrong conclusion from the true premise. Because God can give us truth and then we can reason to a wrong conclusion. Right here. Is God unjust if he, if he makes as he sees fit? If he forms the clay, is he unjust? And he says, may it never be. You can't draw that conclusion. You're measuring God improperly. He measures you. You don't measure him. This does put us in our place a little bit. But, but what if, verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared to destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. What if... That's the way it is. Why is that a problem for us if this is the way that he has chosen to display, to reveal his great mercy? Hmm. Well, then we can ask, well, then is this a new plan? Did he deviate from the plan that he had with Israel and kind of start a new plan? Is this plan B? And he answers again, no, verse 25, and he gives us two, two proofs as to why it's not so. First, he quotes Hosea, verses 25 and 26. Under letter A for your notes, Hosea prophesied about the Gentiles being brought in. This is nothing new. God's always said this. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in every place where it was said to them, in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. I, Hosea prophesied about the Gentiles being brought in. And B, Isaiah prophesied about there only being a remnant of ethnic Israel being saved. Look at this. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth and without delay... 
And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and would have become like Gomorrah. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, if in fact God had not been merciful, there would have been none of us left. The only reason there's a remnant isn't because God has said, oh, let's exclude everybody. It's because out of the mass of fallenness, he in his mercy has said, I need to to save some. I can't let them all perish. I can't. I love them too deeply. It's his mercy. It's always his mercy. Can I tell you one of the paradigms that has crept in even to those of us who, who would say that we hold to the doctrines of grace is that when we look at evangelism, we have this kind of this thing in the back of our minds, maybe not all of you, but certainly some of us do, that the way that we approach evangelism is that, that the, the fall happened in the garden and, and someday God is going to judge man and so let's get to everybody before God judges them. And that's dead wrong. That is not biblical. The truth is, in the garden, everyone was judged. The whole world, all of mankind was condemned in that moment. And the paradigm for Paul is far different. He sees evangelism in a whole different way. Not, boy, I hope I can get to them before judgment comes. They're kind of in a neutral place, and if we can just get them early enough. No, he's looking at a far more drastic situation and one that depends far more on the mercy and the grace of God. It's as though he was in the, t- the Twin Towers on 9-11 when the plane hit, and that was judgment, and the whole building fell, and everybody in there collapsed, and the whole group perished And by some miracle of God's grace, a life is spared. And that one wakes up and he shakes the dust off. And he looks around him and says, there's got to be others here. If I'm alive, there's others here. And he starts crying out, calling, is there anybody else here? Are you alive? And if he sees a hand move or he hears a groan, he runs to it and he pulls the debris off and does everything he can to encourage that life in them. That's how we evangelize. The world's been condemned. Romans 1 says it, that we all fell and we were all plummeting to hell. And the mercy and the grace of God is that we run about everywhere we can now and saying, God has spared one by His grace, a miracle not even knowing at first that we were in fact dead and He quickened us and made us alive. And now we go running through the building saying, are there others? Is there anybody else? See, Paul's not looking at election as though somehow it has excluded. He's looking at it for the remnants of God's mercy. Where are the remnants of His mercy? Where are they? I'm going to hunt them down. I'm going to find them. I'm going to rescue them. That's what ought to fuel our evangelism. We know there's, there's those out there who God will miraculously spare. Let's find them. Let's get to them. Oh yeah, there's a final carrying out of the sentence yet to come. But the world has already fallen, already condemned. Is this a new plan? No. 
Hosea prophesied about the Gentiles being brought in, and Isaiah prophesied about only a remnant of Israel being saved. This is exactly what God had told us would happen. Well then, question six. Then why are the Israelites condemned even though they are God's people? Why? He brings it up. He starts it in verse 30. Well, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. Why are the Israelites condemned even though they are God's people? Answer, because they trust in works righteousness versus faith in Christ. It's that simple. They're on exactly the same footing as everybody else. They have stumbled, he says, over the stumbling stone, who is Christ. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's stunning. So, even though they're God's people outwardly, yet they're condemned, any, who trusts in works righteousness versus faith in Christ. So, he kind of summarizes, picking up in chapter 10, his seventh question. So, have I given up on them in anticipation? No. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for them that they may be saved. You see, he doesn't just leave off. Even though there's only a remnant, he's... He's fired up. He wants to go after them. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. Have I given up on them? No. Answer, but the the issue remains for them as well as for all people. Justification by faith alone because of Christ alone. They're not under some other system. They never were. The fact that God had an ethnic group and that He dealt well with them did not mean that salvation was somehow different than having faith alone in Christ alone. Salvation still rested in that. That God has an ethnic people and can deal with them as such doesn't automatically mean salvation, but so many thought so. He said, no, no, that's, so that hasn't changed. Nothing is new in that equation. Let him finish that out. You see, for Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. You've got to do everything in them if you're going to live by them. Perfectly, absolutely, and of course that can't be done. But the righteousness that's based on faith doesn't have that impossibility built into it. The righteousness that's based on faith does not, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Who's good enough to be able to ascend into heaven on their own and bring down the Son of God? It, that's an impossibility. No, that isn't the righteousness that, that's based on faith. It, it says, do not say that in your heart. Or who will ascend into the abyss, that is to bring up Christ from the dead. Who has that power? No, that's an impossibility again. As impossible as keeping the law. But what does it say? Well, the word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For it's with the heart that one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, this is not a new plan, the Scripture says, and notice he's going back and he's quoting what he quoted at the end of chapter 9. The Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, then how about these Jews? Our eighth question. How then are they to be saved? And answer, the same as everyone else. They have to be evangelized. Matter of fact, this is a really critical thing for him. That the church takes on the duty of evangelizing the Jews. That's the whole context of verses 14 through 17. It's about the Jews. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And who's the they? It's the Jews. He shows you that later. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And then you're going to say, well, wait a minute. Haven't they heard? He'll get to that. But have they not? But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Very important passage. Faith will not come from merely hearing the word of God by itself in certain sections. There is no faith for salvation by hearing the genealogies of the book of Numbers. Faith comes through the word of Christ, the preaching of the gospel. That's the only place. That's why we preach it. That alone is where faith can come from. And if we don't preach the gospel every place we go in Scripture, we, we banish our people and prevent them from hearing the only thing that can give them saving faith. Okay, how are they to be saved? Well, they're to be evangelized the same as everybody else. Well, then nine. But haven't they already heard? Answer, yes. Psalm 19 clearly tells us they already have. But I ask, have they not heard verse 18? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out through all the earth, Psalm 19 says, and their words to the ends of the earth. Well, then question 10. Well, then is it just that they misunderstood? No. No, they refused. Look at what he says in 19. But I asked, did Israel not understand? I mean, they heard, but they didn't understand. First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And then Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me, and I've shown myself to those who did not ask of me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Did they just misunderstand? No, they refused. He quotes from Deuteronomy 32 and Isaiah 66. And so then I've got to ask again, all right, Paul, you haven't given up on them, but has God given up on them? I ask then, 11.1, has God rejected his people? Meganoito, by no means. Has God given up on them? Answer, no, and for two reasons. Two things that he brings to the forefront. I reversed them in your notes, but you can follow where we're going. Letter B should be, look at me. 
I'm the poster child for the fact that God hasn't, for, hasn't forsaken the Jews. I'm a Jew. I'm an Israelite. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says? And now he's going to appeal to the second one, which should be letter A under your notes. A saved remnant was always prophesied. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant. And where does that remnant come from? Chosen by grace. Why? Because God will be merciful and won't wipe them all out. Oh, how merciful He is. But you see, if it is by grace, then it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Grace has to be grace. Well, what then? Question 13. Did Israel just fall and most of them perish? And that's the end of the story? Is that the shift that's occurred? Answer, no. Their fall was in fact the means whereby the gospel came to you. What then? Verse 7. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. And let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Now, does he picture that somehow there was this neutral group of people and God took some and gave them life and to others he hardened them? No, he pictures an entire fallen group. And to harden them means to give them up to their sin. But others he has mercy on. So often we've seen this in wrong cast. Well, how then do we explain this? 7 through 10. Only one way. Answer, God's merciful election. That's it. There's no other answer. The only reason why anybody is saved is because God is merciful enough to elect. If He didn't, we would all perish in hell. It's His mercy that He elects and saves and gives new life. Well then, did Israel just fall and most of them perish? No, their their fall was the means whereby the gospel came to you. So then I ask, verse 11, Did they stumble in order that they may fall? Is that the whole thing? Did they stumble so they may be just done away with? By no means, Meganoito. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Keep that in mind. The reason you and I are saved is because God still wants to have mercy on them. He's still looking to save more, to make them jealous, to call them in. To get to them. He hasn't given up on them to get to us. He's allowed them to stumble, but not so that they might fall, but rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means the riches for the world 
And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? We're going to have to unpack that. God isn't done, though, with these people. He's got more to do. And if we've just cut them off, we're ignoring the whole passage here. We can't do that. No, God's, God's still working. If their rejection means, verse 15, well, let's go back to 13. Now, I'm speaking to you as Gentiles, inasmuch then I said I'm, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. And why do I do it? Why do I go out? I want to save as many as I can of the Gentiles. Why? In order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and save some of them. See, election hasn't made him not want to evangelize. It's had just the opposite effect. Just the opposite. Because I know God's merciful. He's got to have some out there, and I want to go get them. They've got to be there. Now, I'm speaking to you as Gentiles, inasmuch then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Fifteen. For if their rejection... If God's having judged them means the reconciliation of the world, means a way for us to be brought in, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Can you imagine what it will be when God finishes the whole plan? There's mysteries involved here. We don't know what all they entail, but it's going to be awesome. But, And we're going to ask this question, 17 through 24. Has God replaced them with us then because we're better? I mean, it's it's a good question, isn't it? Has God replaced them because we're better? And he answers in two things. First, A, they're not replaced. But if some of the branches were broken off, And you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. They weren't replaced. There were branches broken off, but the root has remained. And secondly, bear in mind that all salvation is pure mercy and all is of grace. You see, they were broken off and you were a wild olive shoot. You were grafted in among the others and you share in the nourishing root. But do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. And then you will say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So what's going to be the issue? What he said back in chapter 10, faith. Faith. Stand only by faith. No, no other thing. Unbelief is unbelief and faith is faith. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. How can this be? That God would be merciful to me. It's a mystery. And it does nothing but make you stand in awe. Because there's nothing different in the saved from the unsaved. Other than that God had mercy. 
Steve Brown says, how do I mark the difference between Judas and Peter? Judas only denied him once. Peter denied him three times. And there is only one answer, grace. Grace. So he wants to sum some things up here for us. We'll have to unpack very carefully these next verses when we get there. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Unbelief is unbelief. Unbelief is unbelief. I don't care what you profess. And note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut by what out from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted in contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? What a glorious thing will happen there. Well, question 15. It's really a summary of what's come before us. So, these things have occurred this way so that God can bring in all spiritual Israel. He's right back to the beginning where he made the difference between a spiritual and a natural. A very important distinction which we're going to have to go back and get to later. So lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There's a time limit on it. It's in this way that all Israel will be saved. You see the idea there. How will all Israel be saved? The idea is the spiritual group by bringing in the Gentiles too. That's how it happens. The deliverer will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Question 16. Well then, all that being said, what is to be our attitude toward the Jews now? Well, verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are the enemies of God for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Answer, they are our beloved enemies. They are our beloved enemies. See the, see the great welding of two ideas there, don't you? We don't throw them off. We love them. Even though they're our enemies. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For you see, God has consigned all to disobedience that He may have mercy on all. 
He's dealt with them that way so that he can have mercy on them. Isn't that awesome? What qualifies you to be a candidate for salvation? You're lost. He's consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Are you a candidate today to hear the gospel and be saved? You need only ask, are you lost? Then you're a candidate. Come. Last question. Well, then what then shall we say to these things? (laughs) Just where he ended chapter 8. All right, you've been through all of this, Paul. Well, what then should we say to these things? Well, this is what we ought to say. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Who would have ever dreamt up such a scheme, such a plan? How is it that he can actually judge his people and yet save his people? How can he condemn all mankind and yet save mankind? How can he jump in and do all these things only by the depth of the riches of his wisdom and knowledge of God? How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. And so to Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, that's a lot to digest. That's the flow of His thought. As He works through this whole thing. What's God doing here? How's He been doing it? Where do we, where do we fit in? What do we do with the Jews? He's going to unpack all that in a lot more detail. But let me give you three things as applications as we close. The first is, and it's the obvious, coming out of chapter 8, all of God's promises remain absolute. Romans 8.30-39 through 39 can be trusted completely because I can see how it is that he could deal with Israel and still be merciful, how he could judge and still be just and still be merciful and gracious and kind because of the miracle of his election born out of his mercy. What an astounding thing. So, Can I trust the end of Romans 8? Absolutely. None of his promises can fail. He showed you they didn't fail regarding Israel. None of them has failed. And none ever will. He'll keep every one. Secondly, we need to remember that election is not an act of exclusion on God's part, but one of merciful inclusion. Without it, no one would be saved. None. None. That day in the garden, we died, all of us, laden with Adam's guilt. And if God did not have some mercy and draw us like brands out of the fire, no one would be saved. None. Third, election is an act of mercy, not of judgment. Can I go back and draw something from... John in that regard. In John 12, Jesus says, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Why didn't he come to judge the world? Because the world was already condemned. It was already condemned. That work was done. There will be a final carrying out of the sentence. 
a final fine-tuning of, of all the individual realities, but the world was already condemned. And so he says in John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's where the world lives. That's where you and I live. And the only hope that any have is the hope that God is merciful. And the proof that He's merciful is that He gives us the gospel and says, go call. I saved you. Now go get the rest. Go call them. My mercy abounds. Isn't it amazing that Paul doesn't give up on the Jews? Have you given up on somebody yet? Don't do it. Don't do it. God's merciful. And He'll use even the means of jealousy, if, if at all possible, to bring them in. Don't give up on them. If there's, if there's breath in their bodies, plead for them and plead with them. But don't give up. He's merciful to extraordinary degrees. And He bids us have that same heart. Be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful, we're told. Be vessels of mercy carrying it to the world, knowing that the building has already collapsed. But He saves. Oh, what a good God He is. And how then our hearts ought to be filled toward others in the mercy. May we agonize like Paul. Oh, I don't give up on them. It's my heart's desire. I pray for them. I preach to people they dislike so that if they get saved, it makes them jealous. I'll do whatever in order to call them in because God's merciful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are large, sweeping realities beyond us, greater than, than we could have imagined. So often, Lord, we, we take certain things, little bits and pieces, and we run with them. And we don't get the big picture. You've never forsaken your people. You've never, ever dropped one of your promises. We don't always understand how you carry them out. And this passage helps us enormously in that direction. But right now, what it ought to do is make everyone in this building say, How awesome. How inscrutable. How, how amazing your wisdom, your judgments, how deep they are and how fast, how far past finding out they are. And ought we not just simply praise you and worship you in awe? Steven Spielberg lies to us. The most amazing thing we can comprehend cannot be seen on a movie screen. It's not the product of the special effects department. It is the product of your mercy when all you owed us was justice, which would have consigned all of us to hell. And instead, you make this known. That's awesome. And may we tremble before your throne in the knowledge of your goodness and grace. 
In Christ's name we pray. Amen.